I want to continue today in our sermon series, Better Together. And we had a little look last week at some of the one another's in Scripture, but today I want to look at the Scripture in Ecclesiastes, which is really where this title of this message series comes from. And it's found in Ecclesiastes 4. And it says this, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity the one who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes says we're better together. The two are better than one because... Uh, it really names three areas, but the implication is there are many more in that we get helped, we get warmed, and we get defended when we come together. Now, I'm sure in your life, if you took a little moment, you could remember, just as I did during this week, thinking about this, many times when somebody reached out a helping hand. Because Ecclesiastes said that's the first thing that's going to happen. You can help somebody else up. And there have been moments in my life when I was floundering or I felt hopeless or I was just stuck in this reality. And uh, I'd lost sight of some truth, which is probably why I found myself there. And somebody reached out a helping hand. And there were no strings attached. And they saved me. And something of gratitude exploded in my heart because I knew it wasn't deserved or they didn't have to. And I knew that, that they were in some ways putting themselves out to do that and that I was in many ways a hindrance. They could have had a happier, easier life, but my engagement and my problem was, was struggling with them. And they loved me and they helped me and they picked me up. And I'm sure you can remember some moments like that. There have been times when God has just stepped into your life and blessed you. Sometimes I felt like I was out in the cold and somebody brought me in close to the inner circle, included me, and their love and warmth changed my whole world. And there have been times when I was being attacked by unseen spiritual forces or by seen people and what I was saying was coming out all wrong and it wasn't helping. And when someone else protected me and stood up for me and they silenced those people, and that brought tremendous help and wholeness to me. And I think that's just the reality. Two are better than one. Because one person going through the challenges of life are going to hit some places where you need help and you need warmth and you need somebody to stand up and defend you and fight with you. That's just going to be the way it is. And it doesn't matter how cute you are, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, it doesn't matter how gifted you are, you are going to go through life and life is going to present you with a fair share, your own fair share of opportunities to get messed up. And no matter how cute you are, because I've tried, no matter how cute you are, you're going to need somebody to stand with you many times. And it's the way God wired us. It's the way God designed it. It is built into the fabric of the way we're supposed to function. Meaningful relationships are the answer. And especially now, after a post-pandemic reality. Meaningful relationships are the answer. Isolating. And bringing ourselves into a personal silo, as controlled as that may feel, 
as in control as you may feel of your life, it is not the best thing for your soul or your health or your life. It simply is not. Good community will bring you warmth and help and protection like nothing else. You're designed by God as creations in need of brotherly love. And so we started this, this like whole series just to say this one truth, and I know it sounds like I'm ringing the same bell, but we're going to ring it till we hear its call. Last month, we highlighted grace teams, and the call of grace teams is to bring your strength. But this month, we're calling you to bring yourself. Bring yourself. Because people who are motivated towards community are perfect for someone else. I may not be everybody's favorite flavor, and you might not be either, but there are some people that you and I are gonna help. We're just gonna be perfect for what they need. And I won't know what that contribution is until I'm in the community, and I see the need, and I feel the compassion, or the Holy Spirit whispers to me, and there's something about me being in the circumstances that the Lord says, now, you, and he's gonna use the furnishings of my life and my mind, and he's gonna say, that thing, remember that thing, say that now to this person, or pray that prayer, or bring that scripture, or tell the story. And I can't tell you what your contribution is going to be, but I swear to you that you have one. And so when I step into that moment with an open heart, I get to share God's grace and his comfort and his peace with others. Whatever he's poured into my life, I get to pour out. And what he's poured in comes through me magnified and multiplied and it can minister to many, many, many others as we just saw today. Second Corinthians 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Can you hear that? God's compassion to you in tough times does not end with you by bringing you out of the tough times. God's compassion for you in the tough times is for you and then through you to everybody who's in tough times that you'll ever meet. Because the testimony on your life is, here's the God who cares and has brought you out. And because he gave you that testimony, he expects you to share it, pass it on, play it forward, go out into your life. And the comfort you've received and the places that he's blessed and the understanding that you've got is not just for you. It's meant now like an infectious disease to be given to somebody. Come on, go out and give it. It's one of those that you need to go and give to people. Now, I had a very nice TED Talk clip, which we can't play for various reasons, because we can't get it working, and it would mean that our service would be not allowed to be shown online. But it's by Robert Waldinger, and Robert Waldinger is the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which began in 1938 with 724 participants. 
And they set out to discover what makes people thrive. It's the longest study on happiness in the world. And uh, the most comprehensive study <clears throat> on what makes a good life. And uh, this is basically what they found. Let me put up the slide for you. What makes a good life? They, they've taken those 700, there's now thousands of people part of the study. What they did was they took uh, half of the study were, were Harvard graduate people who were studying, started at Harvard, and then they went out into the inner city and they found, they found children and they, they enrolled them in the study. So it wasn't just all Harvard people, it was, it was an eclectic mix of people. And what they do is every two years they send them a questionnaire. So for over 76 years, they've been questioning these people, and they go, they do blood tests, they do brain scans, they, it's, they interview them in their homes, they talk to their family and their spouse. This is not just a, hey, what do you think? It's not a, mm, we think, this is a serious study been going on for a long time over, with thousands of people, right? And they, they decided this, that good relationships keep us happier and healthier. Number one, social connections are really good for us and loneliness kills. Number two, it's the quality of your close relationships that matter. They, they went back. There were some, some people in the study, there's about 60 people who are in their 90s who are still part of the study. And they went back with those 60 people to their 50s. So they went back 40 years and they looked at what they were how they were in their 50s, and they discovered that it wasn't their cholesterol levels at age you know, 50 that, that, that determined how good their life was. The single biggest determining factor of how happy and healthy they were in their 90s was how many close relationships they had in their 50s. It's the quality of your close relationships that impact you more than pretty much any other factor. And good relationships don't just affect our bodies, but it protects our brains. They discovered that. If you go to the, I'd recommend you go and listen to that study. It's, if you, the QR code, the study is up there, and you can go and see that on test about 15 minutes. It's a very interesting study, and the findings will help you. The simple issue is that people who, because most of us spend eight hours a day at work, and they said, relationships at work are extremely important. And how you connect there and how much uh, real and meaningful uh, social interaction you have is important. So Greg, why are you telling us this? Well, I'm just telling you that the, that the most prolific and the most respected scientific studies in this area are telling us that it is vitally important and it, it is the reality that we are better together. In her book, Living Refreshed, by Michelle Hazel. She, uh, yeah, I, I know her personally. I just wanted to say. Matthew D. Lieberman, director of UCLA's Social Cognitive Neuroscience Lab, shared the following in his book, Social, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect. By activating the same neural circuitry that causes us to feel physical pains, our experience of social pain helps ensure the survival of our children by helping keep them close to their parents. The neural link between social and physical pain also ensures that staying socially connected will become a lifelong need, like food and warmth. Given the fact that our brains treat social and physical pain similarly, 
Should we as society treat social pain differently than we do? We don't expect someone with a broken leg to just get over it. And yet when it comes to the pain of social loss, this is a common response. The research that I and others have done using fMRI shows how we experience social pains is at odds with our perception of ourselves. We intuitively believe social and physical pain are radically different kinds of experiences. Yet the way our brains treat them suggests that they are more similar than we imagine. This means if you are separated socially, if you are hurting socially, that is a very real pain and it will affect you and your brain. Emma Sepler, PhD, Science Director of Stanford University Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education and the author of The Happiness Track, states the following, that strong social connection leads to a 50% increased chance of longevity. It strengthens your immune system. Because research by Steve Cole shows that genes impacted by loneliness also code for inflammation and immune malfunction. It helps you recover from disease faster. It may even lengthen your life. And people feel more connected to others, have lower self-anxiety and depression. Moreover, studies show that they have a higher self-esteem, greater empathy for others, are more trusting and cooperative, and as a consequence, others are more open to trusting and cooperating with them. In other words, social connectedness generates a positive feedback loop of social, emotional, and physical well-being. So Greg, why are you talking about all these science? Because they're saying the same things the scripture's saying. Robert Waldinger says that the quality of your social relationships are the single biggest factor that means it's going to be good for you. Matthew Lieberman says our brains experience social loss much in the same way we do physical pain. Emma Sepler says that social connectedness generates a positive feedback loop that's going to minister to you emotionally, physically, and in your well-being. Quality relationships are worth every ounce of the effort they require. I don't think I have to convince anybody of the power and the beauty of a good relationship. How much that'll change you. How much that'll give you hope and excitement, and joy, and make life worth living, and make you bounce out of bed in the morning. I watch hitchhike four hours to get home, to get showered, to pick up Michelle for a two-hour dance, drop her at home, and hitchhike four hours back. Slept for two hours that night was worth it. The sense in the scriptures is behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. How beautiful is this, the psalmist said. Because there, 
In that place, God commands his blessing. It's like the oil that was poured on Aaron's head and they poured out like a gallon or two gallons of anointing oil and it dripped down on his beard and onto his robes and down and onto his shoes and there was a puddle on the floor when he stood still. It's as if, the Bible says, as if the dew of Mount Hermon, which is a massive mountain, was falling on, on Zion, which is a tiny little mountain. And on, on Hermon, there's thick dew. It says, now imagine that thick dew on that massive mountain. It was all poured on this tiny little mountain. That's what it's like when we come together. For there God commands his blessing. It's just overflow of blessing. Hmm. So the call today is to remember the beauty of good relationships and to make room in our hearts and schedules in our calendars to pursue them. For many people, as we said, work occupies more of their waking hours than anything else. So work relationships are very important. Make an effort. Good research shows that having a good friend at work makes a huge difference to our well-being. King Solomon realized this need and he appointed somebody to be his friend in his cabinet. Let me show you. So King Solomon was king over all of Israel. And these were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest. Verse 4. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, he put him over the army. Zadok and Abiothar, they were the priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, over all the officers. Zabad, the son of Nathan, a priest, was the king's friend. I'd like to appoint a friend. On staff? What's your job? I'm Greg's friend. <laughs> what does that entail? I don't know. We just hang. How much is he paying you for that? Solomon had somebody. Amongst all the leaders of the nation. That's Abiathar. What does he do? He's the king's friend. Why? Because Solomon needed one. And so do you. Now, as we open our hearts to this need, we all are going to have to remember how good this is. And how good it is is going to make a difference because I'm going to have to pay some price. But Greg, if I open up my heart to relationship again, there's going to be some weird people. Yeah. And it's going to cost me. Yeah. Because in the study of happiness, they found that there's two different types of happiness. There's a hedonistic kind of happiness, and that's the happiness that comes from, this makes me happy. And then there's, uh, there's a horribly named eudaimonic, because you're not demonic, but it's called eudaimonic. <laughs> and that's a bad, that's a bad name. But eudaimonic me, uh, happiness comes from a happiness that comes from a deep inner fulfillment. So that if your child asks you to read that same book for the 10th time, that even the first time wasn't amazing for you, and you're tired, and you lie with them, and you start to read that book again, because that's the book they love, and you love reading the book to them, because that's eudaimonic. It's something of meaning and of depth that brings me happiness. 
And this, behold how pleasant it is when I commit to community and I love people in the church and I help pick people up and I help keep people warm and I help protect them and they do the same for me. There's something about that that brings a deep inner meaning that brings satisfaction to my soul that I can find nowhere else. We spoke about it last week, but love is the, is the kingdom's value. And I want to circle back to that just as we close. Love is the primary message of the kingdom and should be our defining value. Let me say it again. Love is the primary message of the kingdom of God. And it should be our defining value. You know what? That church is really good at worship. That's a wonderful, not as important as really good as love. You know, they're really good at evangelism. Imperative. Not as important as they're really good at loving one another. They have accurate theology. That is imperative. Not as important as they love one another deeply from the heart. Matthew 22, they came to Jesus, asked him a straight question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The most succinct putting together of the law and the prophets by the greatest teacher ever, the one who wrote the law. What's the greatest? He goes, love God with everything you have and love one another like you love yourself. And then the New Testament, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just like I loved you. So he upped it a little. He didn't say like, like you love yourself, because some people don't love themselves that well. But he said, all right, I'm going to switch it up on you. I want you to love other people the way I loved you. Can I just say that Jesus loved me when I was not lovable? In fact, he died for me when I was shaking my fist in rebellion in his face. In the worst moment of my hatred towards him, he used that hatred to be the thing that nailed him to the cross. He used the hatred and rebellion of mankind to be the source of what nailed him to the cross. What do you do with a God like that who uses your rebellion to love you? He said, I want you to love like that. But they're not being lovable. I don't feel like it. <laughs> Suddenly when you, when you say, I'm going to do it like Jesus did it, all the excuses that, you know, I, it, it's, it's been a busy week. Jesus had a busy week the, the week he died. He didn't feel like it. They weren't being lovable. He said, love one another like that. Ephesians says, husbands, love your wives 
how Jesus loved the church. One of the most amazing things, when we came into grace, I was so loving grace. I was celebrating the truth that God treats me. God treats me with the merits of Jesus. That, that God treats me as though I'm in Christ. And everything that Christ earned is mine. And I was celebrating that it's by the merits of Jesus' actions and not my own that God treats me. And I was like, hallelujah. And I turned around and I started treating my wife by her own merits. And the Lord said, you're going to make a choice here, son. Either we're going to do this for the whole household. Either you love her like I loved you. Or we go back to the legalistic thing. Because no, 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 I'm happy for the, let's let grace flow in every direction. But they didn't think the same I did about COVID. See how small an issue that is? They don't see politics the way I do. See how small an issue that is? Oh, I know. You, you think it's all going to... You think like as, if, if you don't convince this person, then, then, the whole, then God suddenly lost his hold on the future. I'm just saying the Bible says... Love one another like I loved you. Husbands, love your wives like Jesus loves the church. And then John 13, we said it last week, I want to say it again. By this, all people are going to know you, my disciples. Not by the miracles you show, not by the devotion, not by your giving, by this, that you love one another. What's and all that you love one another. And that if somebody falls down, that I'm there to offer a helping hand with no strings attached, no condemnation to share, just a helping hand and a loving heart. Because something happens when you're down and you can't get up and somebody reaches down with no strings and just helps you up Something happens in your heart that a law could never accomplish. Something just changes and you go, thank you. And if you're cold and you're feeling left out and somebody grabs, puts an arm around you, brings you in and introduces you into it and suddenly you're part of something and you have a family and you belong. What's that worth? Well, that's worth a lot. That's worth a lot, let me tell you. And when you can't defend yourself anymore and you're exhausted because everybody's got to sleep, somebody stands up and fights for you. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down, the other can help them up. Pity the person who has no one to help them. If two lie down together, they will keep warm. How can you keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken. So Greg, what are you hoping with this message? What's the point? I hope that you would consider opening your heart to connection again. 
you'd make space in your calendar and in your agenda for fellowship, Christian fellowship, that you'd build it in simply because it's the most healthy thing you could possibly do for your soul and your body and your spirit. It is, without doubt, both scripturally and scientifically proven to be the best possible thing that you could do, and especially now in this season. Open yourself up to other believers and minister to them and be ministered to by them. Because in that, there's something that God wants to release. And if we are going to release something in our nation, it has to start with the church. And we have to model something. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants to pour out a new anointing of love. I've been tracking a few places that are tasting the beginnings of revival across the country. You heard that? There's a buzz in the air. The the Spirit of God is moving. People are being stirred up. There's something going on. And in every place I'm listening to, I'm hearing two themes. One is just a new, fresh anointing of love and a call call to holiness, not by the sheer white-knuckled, jaw-clenched effort of believers, but by the Spirit of God working a desire for holiness and working a hunger for holiness. The beauty of holiness, and it comes when we love one another. There is a revolution of love and of holiness coming on the church in revival. And I love that. Give yourself to that. Surrender to the Holy Spirit's promptings in those areas. Respond to Him. And I think we're going to see something profound. Let me pray for us and ask God for that. Father, My prayer for us is that you would cause us, Lord, to find community in such a profound way like we've never even tasted it before. Many of us, Lord, have tasted rich community. I pray, Lord, that you would do something fresh and new. That all across, Lord, this church, people would sign up, get involved, go, hey, I'd like to be part of something. And that, Lord, as we commit and as we push into those relationships and as we do the, the necessary effort to, to sustain them, that they would bring forth, Lord, the, the constant harvest year after year, month after month of health and blessing and wisdom and uh, or just stability and protection and warmth. And I'm asking, Lord, that all across this place now by your spirit, you'd whisper to us, This is what I want for you. This is what I have for you. And so I'm trusting you, Lord, to do something profound for us. Give us a fresh baptism of your love. In 